Change series. I'm your host, Marvin O'Kello. Following the untimely death of George Floyd in 2020, I've taken on the role of diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility manager for the Halifax Wanderers. As of January 2021, we started the podcast as a means of continuing the conversation in a safe space. We're getting close to the two-year anniversary since George Floyd's death, and I can confidently say that we as a club have embodied our mission, which is to bring our community together through sport. My aim is that by having these tough and sometimes awkward conversations, we can begin to break down barriers and strengthen a culture of diversity and inclusion. We'd like to acknowledge that the land on which the Wanderers Grounds office and training facility is located is the unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq people. Today, I'm joined by Justice and Nia. For those of you who don't know these two incredible ladies, you're about to find out why they are on their way to becoming household names. They are strong advocates for changing how youth and adults access and engage with social media, as well as changing the way that the fashion and dance industries provide clothing for dancers of all shades and colors. Justice and Nia founded Revolutionaire, and Revolutionaire is a platform designed for you to make an impact on the cause that you care about. A 19-year-old Howard University student, Nia Faith, had a dream that every dancer would have have apparel that celebrates their skin they're in. And this fueled the creation of Revolutionaire, a brand rooted in dancewear, and growing into a platform to fight social injustices and beyond. Now, Nia and her sister Justice Faith have involved Revolutionaire into a larger movement to empower individuals to use their dreams to fuel revolutions through a digital education, action, and amplification platform for young changemakers. In short, Justice and Nia are changemakers. Welcome, Justice and Nia. Thank you so much, Marvin. Excited to be here. Thank you, Marvin, for having us. It's my pleasure. So just to let everybody know how we met, we met on a Canadian Congress call during Black History Month. And I really want to give a shout out to Chrissy um, for, you know, hosting those calls and Henry as well and bringing us all together. You guys were great guest speakers and I learned a lot on that call. And I just really wanted to share your story and your um, your work with with our Wanders audience. So thank you for for joining today. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us. So you guys have this twinning action that's going on and I don't know how you do it, but you manage to talk sometimes at the same time, but different, but it all flows very well. Um, so I want to kind of individualize you first a little bit. So Nia first, um, what is your full name? Nia? My full name is Nia Faith Betty. Awesome. And are you the younger or the older one? I'm the younger sister by four and a half years. Ah, awesome. And then Justice? Yes, and my name is Justice Faith Betty, the older sister by four and a half years. <laughs> awesome. And so you share the one name Faith. Um, is that by design with the parents there? How did that come to be? Yes. So Faith is actually our mom's name and, of course, our shared middle name. And it's quite funny how our names being Justice Faith and Nia Faith truly kind of laid the foundation for who we have evolved to be as individuals. Of course, me and I have always been guided by faith, both literally through our mother and also through our faith. And faith is what has inspired, you know, our belief in revolutionaries being this movement that it's growing to be. 
And interestingly enough, I mean, Nia is a name that is of Swahili origin, means purpose, is also a dance. And Nia is very much so a person who's guided by her purpose and a lifelong dancer. And for myself, Justice, I studied law and had great aspirations of getting into the legal field and serving in office one day as an elected official. But in the meantime, truly commit to living a life of justice and upholding those values um, every single day. Wow, your parents really hit the nail on the head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's great to hear there's some Swahili back there because that's that's the language that I grew up speaking in Kenya, obviously. And um, English was my third language after I learned um, Swahili and then Arabic. And then when we came to Canada, eventually English. So that's, wow. that's very cool. Do you know um, where your family originates from? So... Our mom moved to Canada from St. Vincent and the Grenadines when she was five years old. And our dad moved to Toronto from Jamaica when he was 12. Um, on our dad's side, uh, we have technically British origins by way of slavery. And then on our mom's side, French origins as well by way of slavery. Uh, and that's about as much as we know uh, in terms of the ancestry side. Yeah, it can be so tough, honestly, to go backwards, you know, and like, it's, it, it's something that I, I struggle with, honestly. Um, cause like I grew up, I was born in Kenya and moved here with, with my family, but you know, I, I can't really ask my parents that much because it's very like traumatic for them, you know, talking about a lot of the past and, you know, cause they weren't born in, in Kenya, they were born in Uganda. And, um, it's, I think people don't realize how much, you know, our, our past, is missing in black families. You know what I mean? Like I, I'm so jealous of people who can go on ancestry.com and find out like, you know, 20 generations back. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one family um, kind of memento that we did have for the longest while were actually shackles from one of our ancestors in St. Vincent. Um, so our, our mom, I guess technically can be traced back to British and French um, origin through slavery. And we actually had the shackles from the British ancestor um, or the ancestor who came by way of uh, the British transatlantic slave trade. We don't currently have access to those shackles anymore, but I think that even just the memory of how recent that actually was in our history and that it's not some distant memory or infinite generations ago is a really, really powerful reminder to think about the fact that it just simply was not as long as we would have hoped it to have been. Mm, definitely. And I mean, it, it's, it's important, especially for our generations now to continue to map out, um, you know, our histories so that our future generations can hopefully, you know, access it and tap into like, what did my parents do? Great grandparents, whatever it might be, you know, like one of my new year's resolutions a couple of years ago was to take more pictures and to document things um, because, when I asked, you know, my parents for pictures from us when we were kids, like because of the fact they were refugees, they can't, they don't really have much, you know, and I know it's something that really bothers them. So I'm really trying to probably to my sister's <laughs> dismay at some points, I take too many pictures. I, I've gotten the paparazzi label, but I think we'll all appreciate it when, uh, when we're older and you have all those memories because it's just such a, an important piece of knowing who you are and where you're going is figuring out where you've been. Yes, 100%. And taking those lessons from history as well. 
100%. I'm glad you said that because that's, that's part of why I think it's really important to ask people, you know, where are you from, where, you know, where are your parents from and in a, in a respectful way, um, because there, there are obviously we've, as black people, we've all experienced people asking us, um, where are you from trying to get an answer that they're really trying to steer, um, to a conversation for their own biases. So there definitely is a, a time and a place and, and, a proper tact, um, of how to do it. But I definitely it's great. It's great to know your your background um, because it tells us a little bit more about, you know, your your why. Yes. So the two of you, I'll start with justice. Um, what was your up your growing up like? You know, did you play sports? Did you dance from a young age? Were you always social? Were you a little more introverted growing up? Like what is tell us yes. a bit about yourself? Absolutely. I was extremely extroverted growing up and probably started public speaking at the age of five, which was around the same age that I started telling people that I want to be the prime minister of Canada one day. So yes, very extroverted, also very politically involved. When I was nine years old, I dressed up in a pink pantsuit and went to the Ontario Legislative Assembly to hear the government at the time present the budget and was just totally mesmerized by uh, these individuals talking about the ways in which they wanted to impact their fellow citizens' lives in the areas that affect them most, from education to healthcare, access to a living wage, and thought, I want to be a part of that. So found myself on dozens of campaign trails over the course of several years and continued to be politically involved. That being said, my parents also tried to put me in every single sport they could possibly think of from soccer. Definitely, I think, was one of the first and to also swimming, skating, golf, karate, dance, tennis, um, so many things. And by the age of, oh, and basketball, of course. By the age of 12, though, they kind of gave up on me. I just recognizing my inherent lack of coordination. And (laughs) I pivoted to competitive debate and then started representing Canada on the world stage and competed all over the world. Wow. And, And what age did you start that? Um, I started debating when I was around 12 or 13 and then competing shortly around that time and then made my first appearance at Worlds probably when I was around like 15 and a half or 16. That's awesome. And how did, how did that, that impact your relationship with her, Justice? Was she debating with you all the time too? Or? Justice definitely loves to debate. Yes, we have a lot of debates. And I remember growing up and always hearing Justice's speeches for her speech of debate. Um, competitions always being recited and I would just always memorize them and then be able to repeat them, which Uh I guess really helped me later on as we do a lot more presentations and speeches, being able to learn from her firsthand. But I was definitely the more sporty uh, kid growing up. I was involved in gymnastics and tennis and swimming and then really fell in love with dance and started dancing here in Toronto when I was 10 years old and quickly found that it was my passion. By 12 years old, I had moved to Los Angeles to train with um, some incredible choreographers. And by the age of 14, I decided that I wanted to pursue the career professionally, left school to be homeschooled and moved away from my family, my friends, my home, my country, and moved to New York to pursue my career there. Um, And yeah, that was my 
childhood, always really involved in dance and sports and just always listening to justice with her speech and debate. <laughs> That's awesome. That kind of explains then the whole twinning energy with when you were citing all her, her speeches and kind of getting her essence captured. Yes. That's awesome. Were you uh, introverted or extroverted as well growing up? I was very introverted, probably also because I was always beside the extroverts. Because <laughs> that That's usually how it goes. There's usually not room for two extroverts. Yes. That's awesome. And um, one just, have you heard of Twitch, the dancer, the guy who's on So You Think You Can Dance? Yeah. So I worked with Twitch when I was- No uh, way! Yeah, so I met him when I was 12. I also worked with his wife, Allison Holker, and she taught me contemporary, which taught me hip hop, and yeah. That's awesome. Those two were my favorites. Like, they were so incredible. Just me and my sisters used to watch So You Think You Can Dance, like, religiously. Um, so that's awesome that you worked with Twitch. He's such, like, a celebrity. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it was super fun, and he's, like, an incredible choreographer, so it was fun to work with him. That's awesome. And like, uh, just as a, as a person, like, what is he like? He's really sweet. He's really, really sweet. There's a lot of um, people in the dance world who are very harsh and especially in like the ballet world, but I found that like hip hop and contemporary artists were a lot kinder. And he especially stood out as someone who really cared about his students. Uh, so what was that movie? Um, with the girl goes to Juilliard and the teachers are all super hard. Was that not see the last dance? See the last dance? Maybe. I, I don't know. <laughs> you don't know what I'm thinking of? Maybe I am showing my age a little bit. <laughs> but no, it's, it's just when you say how ballet, like every movie that I think I've ever watched, they're always really strict and really rigid and like, not relaxed and not not nice. <laughs> yes, that is exactly how I describe ballet in in real life, <laughs> and doubly so uh, for black ballerinas. Yeah, for sure. As a black dancer, there was a lot of very blatant racism that I dealt with, especially here in Toronto. Wow, I'm sorry to hear that. It seems like there's no facet of life that you can get away from it. Really, yeah, exactly. So I guess that leads into my next one. Like, what were some of the challenges that you that you each had? Um, you know, justice with you growing up in, in the debate world. Like, that seems like um, an area that there would be a lot of, you know, a lot of rifts. Um, you know, it's an interesting question. I think that uh, the debate world is a place where I absolutely excelled and if anything growing up black at a toronto all girls predominantly white private school uh was more of the um kind of like person shaping experience that had where i had a lot of those defining moments that encouraged me to really reflect on my identity as a black woman and even experience things that quite frankly i didn't even start to unpack until 2020, like six years after graduation, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you grow up in a household like ours and you're always told by your parents, you're going to have to work twice as hard. This is what people will expect of you when they see you. And this is the amount of work that you're going to have to put in to not only prove them wrong, but also to live up to the expectations that we know you can fulfill and exceed. And 
as an optimistic young person, I was also very naive and kind of and dismissive of things like that and assuming that more progress had been made. But of course, parents are always right. I had my fair share of experiences in high school and certainly as well living abroad in France for part of my undergraduate education that really reaffirmed the fact that my parents were absolutely right on this issue. But I think that Nia's experiences in the dance world very much so shaped revolutionary's origin story and the challenges that she faced. Yeah, absolutely. I think, as I said, like the ballet world specifically is really difficult and especially for Black dancers. So even when I was dancing here in Toronto, it would be things from um, the Black dancers in my studio being physically separated from our non-Black peers and told to learn our choreography off of videos while our teachers work with our non-Black peers. And when we did perform as well in competitions or for exams, it was made to be a point about our race rather than the fact that there were clear inequities in how we were taught the dances or going into a dancer store and having to get your tights and your shoes and seeing that your non-Black friends can go and just get everything off the shelf and go off to class, but you have to go home and dye everything because there are no options for dancers of colors. So I think that I saw very clear examples of racism um, quite often in the ballet world. And again, it was particularly prevalent here. It wasn't until I went to New York and LA where I was able to see that there, there is a possibility for me to make it. When I met Misty Copeland specifically, it was the realization that I was like, here's a living example of someone who overcame the challenges that I'm facing right now and was able to accomplish her dreams. And uh, that got me through the difficult times, but it definitely was not easy growing up in the ballet world as a black dancer. Wow. Wow. I can't imagine. And, you know, our last few episodes, um, this recurring theme is representation. And I think it's just a common theme in, you know, the DI space um, because it's truly, you need those people who look like you to be able to persevere through those moments because is it safe to say if you didn't have that moment that you might've quit, you might've given up? Yeah, absolutely. I think I was really at my breaking point at that time. Um, I dealt with so much racism, whether it was going to an audition and being cut from the audition before I could even dance just based off how I looked. And I just didn't think that there was a chance for me to make it. And then I saw Misty and saw her perform and my, again, saw my dream in actuality and was mm-hmm. like, I, I can make it. I can um, make my dreams come true. And that really propelled me. So Yeah, I think without that representation, without Misty, I definitely would not have continued my dance career. That's awesome. Well, it's great to hear that you've had people and now you guys are, you know, being an example for a whole other generation, you know, so I really commend you for for taking what was initially adversaries and making them your strength, you know, and it's a huge credit to your character and um, also the way your your parents raised you clearly. You guys are very well balanced individuals. one thing I'm curious about in in the dance world, and it seems like I know the answer, but um, specifically in ballet, like, is it just because it's a very what like white dominant like sport? As far as the racism, yeah, just even in terms of the enrollment, like, like, is it safe to say that you were the minority being a, a black woman in ballet, like, like, yeah. Absolutely. It's definitely a white dominated sport. And when we look at 
the reasons why it comes down to a variety of factors. One is location of dance schools that are usually in predominantly white areas. Another is the fact that many dance schools and companies that require auditions most of the time do not accept dancers of color. And the reason that I've heard from auditions was that it, you stand out too much. So if everyone looks the same and you look different, the viewer's eye is going to go to you and you're going to be distracting. Things like that, which Unbelievable. when someone's coming to see a ballet and see a performance, they want to see dancing. They want to yeah. see dance and enjoy themselves. They don't, it, it doesn't matter what your skin tone is. Mm. Um, so those types of barriers really, I think, contribute to the fact that ballet is continuing uh, or continues to be predominantly white um, art and sport. And also its origins as well, like when you think mm. of for example. Yes. So ballet started way back. Um, of course, like Louis Cateau's was uh, predominant in ballet history, but even in more recent modern ballet history, when we think of people like um, George Balanchine, who's the founder of New York City Ballet and former artistic director, who was quoted to have said that a dancer's skin should be like a freshly cut apple. So an apple is great when it's freshly cut and it's nice and white, but once it turns brown, wow. it out, right? Um, so things like that really shaped how the dance industry is now and how a lot of people still think. Wow. Little did they know the black are the berry, the sweet of the two. Exactly. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> so to, to flip it back to you, Justice, like I have a feeling there's probably some similar tones even in the debate like world. Um, is it, were you the minority as as a black woman or just as a black person? Oh, a hundred and ten percent with without a doubt. Um, but I grew up in circumstances, or Nia and I both grew up in circumstances where we were all always uh, basically in the room. We, we try not to say minority, honestly, but yeah, it is like the only, the only person of color in the room, whether it was going to predominantly white institutions during the day. And then Nia, of course, as well, going to ballet evenings and weekends before she transitioned full time to entering spaces like debate or political campaigns or wherever else. It was always a matter of being the only, and it was something that I became very accustomed to. Um, and Nia, as well, I think it was really interesting when we were thinking about post-secondary options for both of us. I chose to go to Columbia and Sciences Po for a dual degree program. And of course, that was, you know, an incredible international experience, but also introduced me to new forms of racism, such as being called the N-word um, in my school courtyard as a student in France. Uh, to then also really thinking about what it meant to be a black person in America during Trump's presidency, because uh, I started at Columbia in 2016. And it was interesting because Mia also got accepted to the same program, but decided to go to Howard instead and find herself on an HBCU campus where she could be surrounded by like-minded people, like-minded black people in pursuit of a wonderful education, not just academically, but also uh, I would say socially too as well. Mm. And it is, it is a huge forgotten piece is the social aspect, you know, and I'll be honest, that's something I really struggled with um, culture shock when I moved to Canada, because I've always been extroverted, but it was easier to be extroverted in Kenya where everyone looks like you and, you know, is going through the same things as you. But, you know, as soon as you land in a new 
continent, a new country, new province, new city in Fredericton, um, like I had this whole identity crisis. I was like, I don't know who I'm supposed to be. I don't know who I'm supposed to please. I don't like, there's this whole popularity thing that like is huge in North America and probably took me until like early twenties before I actually was figured out it doesn't matter what the world wants me to be or the school wants me to be or sports need to me. Like I need to just be who I want to be. Right. You know? and, and I think that's very common for, for black people specifically, but just minority groups. I use that word because it's very common, even in sports. Um, but what do you think shapes you the most in your youth? Was it, the tough experiences that created the almost the toughness that you need to have, or was it a combination of the tough experiences and the good experiences that allowed you to be able to thrive in the environment that you're in now? It's an interesting question. And me and I talk a lot about this idea of like a spark of inspiration, which can come from positive circumstances or just Mm -hmm. beautiful dream that comes to you uh, that inspires you to, unlock new possibilities and also a spark of inspiration that can come from really challenging times, such as what you've alluded to Marvin or Mia decided to turn her adversities into something really positive. For me, I think that, Oh, like the thing that shaped me the most was having a childhood that was fundamentally grounded in exposure. And that came from our parents and in particular, our mom, whereby you know, we grew up never getting Christmas presents, for example. Instead, we would spend the holiday season grocery shopping for food insecure families and deliver meal baskets. Our dad is a lawyer in the city and over a period of many years represented families who lost their children to gun violence here in the city. And he took us alongside him to protest from a very, very early age and simultaneously exposing us to things, but then also really reinforcing this idea of the power of dreams and our mom being really, really insistent for her daughters growing up in this country to say that nothing is too big for you to accomplish. And I will support you in every single thing that you do. So me saying at the age of five, that I want to be prime minister of Canada was something that my parents very much so celebrated and encouraged me to tell everyone to the point where when I go to talk to my daycare teachers, they asked me if I still want to be prime minister of Canada. Like it's that upbringing that really brought about exposure to not only circumstances and challenges, but also exposure to what you as an individual can do in your community and beyond was instrumental in terms of shaping my personal development and growth far beyond any one specific experience or challenge I may have had as a kid growing up. Yeah, I definitely have to agree. And I think it's connecting the exposure with action. So Mm. us being upset that there are so many people who were facing a housing crisis and being unhoused and our mother saying, well, let's do something about it. Let's create meal baskets. Let's do something to help them. Or um, the issue of gun violence in the city and our dad saying, let's go to a protest. Let's do something. Let's make our voices heard. That allowed us when we faced adversities to think about how we can transform them and hopefully create something that would help the next generation of people to not have to deal with the same issues that we dealt with. And then of course our parents supporting our dreams. Um, I think 
it, from my conversations with a lot of people when I tell them my story, they're like, as a parent, I don't know if I'd let my 12 year old daughter drop out, drop out of school or like be homeschooled and then like move to Los Angeles and live in a dorm because she wanted to be a dancer. Right. Mm-hmm. So many parents would be like, you have to stay in school, finish high school, go to university. And then when you graduate, you can do what you want to do. Yeah. Um, but my parents saw that passion in that dream that I had and said, if you want to do this, then do it and do it at the highest level that you can and pursue your dreams and we'll support you in any way. And I'm so grateful for that. That's awesome. And, you know, shout out to your parents. Um, obviously they did a great job in laying a foundation for you guys to succeed. Um, and, it, and it's so important because a lot of times we, we can't, we can't do anything without that foundation. Um, but that's only half the story, obviously, right? You guys took, you know, the bull by the horns and you, you, you manifested your own future. But what I really love about what you just said, Nia, is that, you know, your parents gave you an option to try and that wasn't sure that you were going to succeed, but they were willing to let you fail to try to succeed. Yes. And, and that's so, I think it's so forgotten and not underappreciated. It's underappreciated in society. Even when you talk about, Oh no, what did they want? What a lot of parents want you to do instead, finish your high school, go to university, do your four years, you know, come out in debt without a job and then go do what you want with your life when you're in this big hole and you're like 23 and now, now do what you want with your life. Like it's so backwards thinking like, like even this whole university thing, like I had this conversation with a few of my friends who are, have one degree, some two degrees and are working as servers, as bartenders, as things that have nothing to do with their degree, <laughs> the piece of paper that they got for their four years or eight years in school. You know, so I really commend your parents for allowing you to try something early that allowed you to thrive by the time you were 19 going to Howard, you know, like none of that happens if they didn't let you try when you were younger to do what you want, figure out, okay, maybe I don't like this. Maybe I do like this, you know, for, for justice, maybe I I'll try soccer. I'm not that graceful. Okay. Let's what's next. Like that's so important for empowering the youth. Um, And that takes us to where did you end up starting this, this brand, you know, cause I, from reading your bio, it started initially as um, the dance and the clothing um, from Unia. How did that all come to be? Yeah. So as I mentioned, I would often go into dance stores and not see any apparel options for dancers of color. So I'd always have to dye my apparel while my friends would just be able to go off to class. And when you mean, when you say dye, what do you mean by that? Like drop it in like a container of color that then dyes it. Exactly. Exactly. So that's what I'd have to do for like tights or like even the straps on your tutus so that they don't show um, when you're performing and um, my ballet shoes and my point shoes specifically, I would have to dye them by hand because that ex- expensive and time consuming, I imagine. And so, so to provide some extra context, my point shoes cost about $90 per pair. Um, that if I don't dye them, I can wear them for maybe four days, maybe five days. Dying them breaks them down faster and meant oh, wow. that by the time I was dancing at um, the highest level that I was, I had to wear a different pair every day. 
Wow. Uh, so that became very expensive and also very time consuming. Yeah. And I thought that this was isolated to Canada. Again, I was like 10 to 12 years old, really, when I was thinking about this. And I didn't realize how widespread the issue was until I met Misty Copeland when I was 12 years old. And I asked her to sign my dance shoes when we were backstage at a performance. And the dye started coming off in her hands. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry that this is happening. And she explained that the same thing happens to her. She actually uses the same method of dyeing her shoes. And sometimes it like gets on the stage, it could get on her costumes. And I had this moment where I was like, wait a second. If Misty Copeland, who's one of the top dancers in the world, and she's, um, for those who don't know, the first Black principal dancer with the American Ballet Theater in their 80-year history. So really, she's at the top of um, one of the biggest dance companies in the world. If she doesn't have access to apparel and what she needs, what are other young Black dancers such as myself supposed to do? And that's when I really started ideating and thinking about what it would look like for a dancer brand for dancers of color. I did a lot of research and found Dance Theater of Harlem, which is a predominantly Black dance company in Harlem, actually um, creates bottles of dyes and gives it to their dancers to be able to, like they pre-mix everything and give it to their dancers to be able to dye their own apparel and perform. It's like, this is taking so much time away from black dancers and all the great things we could be doing. We could be working on our craft. We could be doing um, a hobby on the side, studying anything. Um, So I was like, we really need to create something. And I started ideating about it. And when I was 16, I was living in New York really at the height of my dance career, pursuing all of my dreams. And I suffered an almost career ending injury. And I had broken a bone in my foot, but was, I continued dancing on it. And I did an entire nutcracker season with a broken bone in my foot. No pun intended, wow. Yeah, that led to um, me tearing a ligament in my other foot because I was overcompensating too much. Mm-hmm. And I ended up on bed rest for several months. So during my time on bed rest, I started thinking about the stream that I had and just started doing little sketches of dance wear and contacting fabric suppliers and trying to make this dream a reality. Um, fast forward to 2019, I got on ca- campus at Howard for the first time. I was really able to ideate and create with like-minded black dancers and think about everything that we'd want in a dancewear brand and work with my friends to bring it to life. So we launched in 2019 as Canada's first ever dancer brand catering to dancers of color. That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> it's just, it's incredible. And there's so many so like brands, I'll be specific with brands, are born out of somebody finding a solution to a problem. And like, you really epitomize that, you know, you really dove into the problem and instead of just moaning about it, um, because that's what I find Generation Z does a lot of, unfortunately, <laughs> you actually acted and came up with the, with the solution. Um, and that, that's incredible because I, f- I feel like there's so many other things like this that, you know, could be birthed if people just stop looking at things as a problem and just start to think, what is the solution? Exactly. You know, you, 
even this podcast is something that was born out of, you know, a bad situation. Like, like I said, in the intro, you know, George Floyd, but it's like, what is something we can do out of this problem um, that's happening? And I really commend you for, for taking action. And it's just, it's just refreshing, honestly. Um, So justice, I'll flip back to you, you know, especially as somebody who wants to be a, a future prime minister, (laughs) <laughs> and I think you'll get there, honestly. Um, what are some advice you would give to people who are going, especially young, young uh, people who are going through challenges and in sport and in debate? And what is your main message? So. It's such an interesting question, and I try not to sound like a broken record, but at the end of the day, I really, really think it's so important to identify your spark and your why and use that as fuel for what you want to do and the light that you want to create in this world. And I think, I don't know, Marvin, I'm going to have to disagree with you. I think Gen Z is not the moaning generation. Gen Z is the power generation. We are the action generation, and we are getting things done while cleaning up the messes of all the previous generations that failed to act. Uh, and I, I do agree. I do. I sorry. I didn't finish. You guys do a lot of complaining, but you do a lot of acting too. That's what I was trying to get at. I didn't. Exactly. Finish. My apologies. No, no <laughs> apologize. But we are not ever looking to hesitate when it comes to identifying an injustice or wrongdoing and calling it out for what it is, and then committing to the action, as you said, to support that. But. What's really, really important about identifying your why is that the world is a noisy place and the world will do things that quickly see you, you know, being in a situation where the can'ts outnumber the cans and the no's and sources of rejection become infinite. When you know your why, you know your purpose, you know what wakes you up in the morning and where you want to go, that allows you to truly focus on that vision. And I think that the power of a vision that you're committed to is truly infinite and no one can take that away from you. So owning your stuff, owning your vision and being committed to it is super incredibly important, but it starts with fundamentally understanding what your why is. And I think that it's a question I've asked myself for so many years. I've always done certain activities, whether it's volunteering, community work, activism, politics, whatever it is. I've always done certain things in a specific space that I felt drawn to but couldn't necessarily articulate my why until more recently. So while your why is not always something that comes to you immediately, I do think that committing that time to get to know yourself more deeply to identify your why is so incredibly important. And without sounding remotely dramatic, it is truly life-changing once you've understood your why, because again, nobody can take that away from you. Well, 100%. I completely agree. I feel like I was reborn twice. Um, First in like my early 20s after going through that identity crisis of, you know, moving to Canada and having to rediscover myself and where do I fit in in this city, in this province, in this country. Um, So that was like the first one. And the second one, honestly, was watching George Floyd die. I think that was the, the true lasting why that I found. It's like, what can I do? What do I want to do? Who's the person I want to be? What do I want for my community? What can I do for my community? Like, and I think you're, you're so right. You've hit the nail on the head that it's important to find your why. And you, you even said at one point that um, it's good to be patient um, when finding your why, because I think a lot of times people rush 
and they just assume that this is my why because of this is what my parents did. This is what my friends are doing. This is what the people around me are doing and not actually listening to their internal factors and just defaulting to, okay, this is what everyone says I should be. This is what my parents taught us. This is what teachers and just doing it. Like when you said Nia, you know, when people challenge, like, why would they, your parents let you, you know, be homeschooled and go to this school that's away from them. And like, because that's how you find out your why. Exactly. You don't do that staying in a comfort area. It's like the most common quote about growth is supposed to be uncomfortable. You don't grow if you're in a comfortable environment. Therefore, we need to leave our comfort. We need to challenge ourselves to find our why properly and not just what we think our why should be or what other people think our why should be. Yeah, couldn't agree more, Marvin. And the other thing that I say alongside finding your spark and your why is the importance of pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone with the intent of expanding it. It was one of the main reasons why I decided to go move to France at the age of 17, despite never having lived there or even visited before. Or when I was a management consultant and found myself traveling all over from mining sites to big banks and private equity and telcos moving as a political science and law major, but somehow now advising these Fortune 500 companies on opportunities for improvement and strategy. It was so incredibly outside of my comfort zone. But, you know, a couple of years later, there are very few things that frankly intimidate me. And I attribute that and attest that kind of growth and development to the fact that I was intent in the early stages of my life to actually push myself outside my comfort zone uh, to redefine my limits. Fair. And question for both of you, I'll start with Nia. What was your toughest moment or like a couple of your toughest moments? Because it can be tough sometimes to find one. But was there any one defining moment that you were like, this is this is like this is God put God's putting me through it. You know, like if I get through this, I can get through anything. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I again because we had those tough moments when we were younger, very, as Justin said, very few things intimidate us now, but at my dance studio here in Toronto, that is at between ages of, I guess, 10 to 13, there was, as I said, a lot of racism. There's also a lot of physical abuse that was um, very difficult to deal with. And it led to many injuries. Um, there was a lot of manipulation, um, from our dance teachers and artistic directors who um, also try to, you know, contact our parents and make it seem like anything that your daughter is telling you um, isn't, isn't true. Like, this is a great environment, things like that. Um, I remember a teacher would repeatedly tell us that there were certain foods that we weren't allowed to eat. I remember eating um, some brown rice at a at, on my lunch break at dance and my teacher yelling at me and then calling my mom and saying, I think that Nia has an eating problem and I don't want her to become fixated on food um, or develop an eating disorder. So just make sure that she's eating as much as she needs to eat and trying to create that um, difficulty between parents and their children. So that was something that happened a lot within my dance studio here. And then again, the physical abuse was really difficult to deal with. And um, I had this defining moment when I was supposed to go to my dance exam and I had dealt with 
a lot of humili- humiliation that week because of the inequities in the studio, whereby um, after a series of exams for myself and the other black dancer there scored significantly lower than our non-black peers. Um, again, it was made to be a point of race and as if black people cannot dance and we can't do ballet. And so identifying that the issue was that we were told to learn a vid- our choreography up of videos rather than working with our teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just said, I'm, I'm done. I'm not going back to the studio. I left all of my stuff in my locker. I never went back um, and just decided to move on with my life. And so that I was never going to put myself back in that situation and was able to leave the studio and leave Toronto. And my career thrived after that. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't an easy decision to make because you probably had, you know, friends there. You had, you know, an attachment to certain things there, I can imagine. Yeah, it wasn't an easy situation um, and an easy decision, but I I wrote about it on our revolutionary blog um, in 2020. And I, like January 2020, I published a blog article and I received all these messages from like dozens and dozens of dancers those who were there when I was there, those who had graduated from the school five years before I'd even started dancing, and those who were two years old by the time I'd left, at the time I'd left the studio and were now older, um, seeing that they had similar experiences and that they were still dealing with their trauma um, from the situation. And I think I was really able to reconnect with my friends and we're able to connect on a deeper level now. Uh, recognizing that we all went through similar challenges. And when we were younger, we felt like we were doing it in isolation. And now we're able to come together and face those challenges together. So it kind of became a full circle moment. Wow. And I, and I love that that's changing. You know, even us having this conversation now is part of that shift in culture. And we're able to have these tough and sometimes awkward conversations, like I said in the intro, but they usually lead to a lot of great feelings and you know, it's like they said, only only love can drive out hate. Right. And that's why we're able to have these these great conversations. And I'm thankful for the platform that we have to be able to meet, even though we're hours apart and thousands of kilometers apart. Um, but thank you for being willing to share your, your experiences so that other people understand that the road to success isn't always an easy one. More often than not, it, it, it's not. Um, so back to you, justice, you know, what was your moment? Um, what was one of your tough, toughest things you had to go through in your, in your life? Yeah. So it was, I guess relatively recent, but it would have been the murder of George Floyd and May 25th, 2020, uh, was, it really was a turning point for me in my life whereby I grew up as someone who is like just very happy basically all the time and never really found myself to be all that emotional or sad or like I would go years without crying. And I say a lot to say, like after the murder of George Floyd, I found myself crying every single day for weeks on end, dealing with a flurry of emotions that ultimately boiled down to a mix of deep sadness and anguish, but also extreme anger and frustration. And, um, you know, six days or so into this period of time, I wrote a letter to um, the global managing partner of the firm that I used to work at that basically kind of like issued this call to action in terms of 
doing work specific to racial equity and social justice. And then I became very much so involved in the firm's work in that space for three months, developing our international strategy along with a team of consultants. And that was good. Um, but I felt like I wanted to do more. And it boiled down to me saying that I grew up in the family that, you know, I did. And my activism at this moment in time could not be limited to evenings and weekends. And I needed to bring my education and my experience to these issues that I thought critically about for years. And in the middle of the night, I was doing ample reflection on it and was basically inspired by Nia's journey in terms of wanting to make the dance world a more equitable space. And this period of time that Gen Z found ourselves in with a lot of conversation, but trying to figure out how do we move that conversation towards action? Uh So with that question, I asked myself, what would it look like if young people were empowered with the network tools and information they need to truly make a difference in the causes that they care about and to do so at scale? And ultimately said that this could be done in part through a social network for change makers. And that, of course, represents the evolution of Revolutionaire and was enough of a thought, an idea, an inspiration to actually encourage me to quit my corporate job in the middle of a pandemic, a very secure, comfortable corporate job and leave it all behind in pursuit of social justice full time and to be able to do so with my sister as my co-founder and also our incredible team of over 30 young activists, community organizers and leaders from all across North America. And it's, it's an incredible platform. I really can't say enough about it. Um, I'm not like the most tech savvy person. I'm somewhere is probably in the 70th percentile, let's say. <laughs> and like you guys have done really well. And um, back to what you said about, you know, George Floyd being one of the moments, you know, you shared that with us on the Canadian Congress call. And I resonated with that so much. Um, it really was all the emotions you said from anger to fear to sadness to depression like it was it was tough to deal with and it's great to hear that you use that as a catalyst um for change within yourself you know because as we said earlier a lot of the the best brands the best most successful people are are birthed by these moments really that define us you know and it's it's unfortunate that was one that we all globally had to watch and we all reacted differently you know and it's it's all too common what what happened after on a global scale with all lives matter versus black lives matter and all that um but it's just it's great to hear that good can come out of bad moments really is what i'm trying to get at And it's so incredibly challenging, right? Because it's an injustice that occurred so senselessly. A man was murdered by way of another man, another person putting their knee on somebody's neck. Like it is just the most, one of the most heinous things I think to- The number of witnesses that did nothing. And the number of witnesses and the fact this was all caught on film. But as you said, Marvin, it is something that happened so regularly, unfortunately, and is indicative of a truly systemic issue in not only the United States, but also in countries around the world, including ours, whereby Black people and people of other identities as well are not recognized as people to the point where the statement Black Lives Matter 
is deemed to be political, remotely controversial, as opposed to individuals just affirming their right to exist and to be human. Um, so yes, uh, of course, you know, good can come from evil occurring in some in some ways in the sense that it did, but I, I'm forever saddened by the fact that, you know, George was murdered. Uh, and yeah, anyways, I'll stop there uh, because yeah, we could we could go on about that for quite some time. No, I hear you because there was there was a lot before um, before George Floyd, and it, it's it's it is frustrating that it took so many yes. people's lives being taken before. There are so many lives that have been lost since George Floyd's murder. Even more locally, and like that's that's where I really struggle um, with George Floyd being the catalyst because like yes. The whole world watched it and we were all at home during a global pandemic, which is noticeably why, you know, a lot of people paid attention to that one specifically. But there's a lot of other situations that have happened like that, that were almost as publicized. We weren't all at home, you know, and in quarantine, but we were all able to just turn our head and just keep going so many times, Ahmaud Arbery and, you know, there's, there's so many names. I don't even want to start dropping them because the list goes on and on, but I'm hopeful that because of what we have seen happen um, with George Floyd, that it won't take many videos and many people seeing things like that happen in the future for a catalyst to be changed. And especially with Gen Z being ready to jump into action really at any situation. Um, I, I, I want to, I guess this is a call just for anybody really who's listening to just not wait. There's nothing to wait for. Like if you see something happening, do something about it now in the moment, sometimes it's too late, you know, and, and we, on that Canadian Congress call, we talked about, you know, kids help phone and what kids are going through right now, you know, with depression, with suicide being at an all time high. So it's even more important now more than ever that when we see things that are happening to, to actually act, to do something to, if it's at the dance school, you know, and you're another one of the dance teachers who's hearing um, this instructor give these black students, Oh, go do this with videos, you know, do something about it. If you're somebody who's at this debate to one of those debates and you're seeing, Oh my God, this girl is being treated differently because she's black and no one's sitting with her. No one's eating with her. Go sit with her. Like there's so many things that are can seem like such a small action in the time, but go such a long way in other people's lives. Absolutely, Marvin. And a lot of what you're describing as well boils down to allyship. And we're proud to have launched the Revolutionary Allyship Pledge that details really tactical steps that individuals can take in the moment and immediately afterwards to truly live the values of what it means to be an authentic ally. And that pledge is available at www.revolutionary.me forward slash allyship. And you also mentioned Kids Help Phone, and I'll take this as an opportunity to talk about the really incredible initiative that Kids Help Phone recently launched for Black youth in particular called Rise Up. It's a a national support line that's fully bilingual and available to uh, Black youth who perhaps are experiencing any type of challenge related to anti-Black racism or others. And if you are in need of support from that line or know someone who might be able to benefit, um, it is available at www.kidshelpphone.ca forward slash 
rise and Revolutionary is proud to be in support of Kids Help Them. So always happy to give them an important shout out and get the word that these resources do exist and are designed for Black youth. And furthermore, as well, Kids Help Bone, uh, through our partnership with them, is very much so amplified on our platform through our recharge library with dedicated resources around self-care, mindfulness, and mental health. Awesome. And don't forget to show your own brand. So starting with the clothing side of it, what's the website for people who want to support your clothing brand and themselves? Yes, absolutely. So to shop our revolutionary clothing, we also have expanded to have more accessories, including athletic tape and kinesiology tape for people of color. So definitely be sure to check that out. That's at www.therevshop.co. We also have our um, broad website that has all the information about the platform, the shop, and a scholarship application for young dancers ages 5 to 18. So if you're a dancer or no dancer, please encourage them to sign up um, and apply for that scholarship. We give out scholarships every year, and those funds come from our shop. So to support the scholarship fund, head to the shop. To apply for a scholarship, head to www.revolutionaire.co. And to join our Revolutionaire Social Network for Changemakers, head to www.joinrev.co. Awesome. And I'll definitely plug those um, in the bio when I post the podcast as well. So um, if you're looking to rewind and catch those, don't worry, I'll definitely post some on there. Um, And selfishly, I hope that, you know, even my nieces are able to take advantage of something like the scholarship because um, two of my nieces are in dance right now and they they absolutely love it. I'd love for them to come as far as you have at some point. Yeah. So it's great that you guys are also giving back to that. just a little bit more about the 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 social platform. Um, what is the general idea of the social platform? Why why is it something that youth should join? Yes, sure, absolutely. So when you come on to Revolutionary Social Network for Changemakers, you go through this revolutionary revolution, as we call it. So it starts with. Um, learning about the causes that you care about. Right now we have information on five causes, environmentalism, racial equity, housing and food security, anti-gun violence, and criminal justice reform. So you can learn through our video content, our podcast content, and also articles that have been created by our incredible team of young change makers that are written in a really accessible way for young people and people of all ages to really break down these issues and understand them better. There's hundreds of articles on the platform that you can learn from. From there, you can take action directly from within the platform. So in our action hubs, you can um, send emails to your representatives. In one click, you can send a pre-populated email to your entire city council, for example, asking um, them to take action on the cause that you care about. You can sign petitions. You can start your own petition. You can do uh, donation drives and fundraisers and find volunteer opportunities, and that all lives within our action hub. You can also be supported by our community of young people. Sorry, one second. (laughs) So sorry. No worries. You can also be supported by our community of young people looking to make a difference both locally and abroad, as well as, as well as um, take part in 
our recharge library, as I mentioned, because at the end of the day, self-care and preserving yourself is super important when we think about sustaining the movement. But at the end of the day, if you're an individual who cares about issues in your community and beyond, wants to learn more and find ways to take action, join Revolution Africa community of change makers looking to do exactly that. Awesome. So it doesn't matter if you're a millennial, Gen Z, you're just looking to make some change. And is there an age cap on the platform? There's no age cap, but as you'll see in our community guidelines, minimum age to join Revolutionary is 13. And our platform is very much so youth-centered, but we look forward to always learning from individuals with more experience than us, provided they respect our voices uh, on these issues. Awesome. And what happens if something negative, um, be it racist or misogynistic or anything is said on your platform? Yes. So there are several different tech uh, features within our platform that work to make it a secure and safe space for young people. Um, our platform is powered by Coros, which is the world's leading community management software company for brands such as Visa, Microsoft, PayPal, Sephora, Spotify, and so many others. And ultimately, in addition to there being a series of backend features that would inhibit such a post from actually being posted and made visible into our platform, we have active live moderation on the platform and on top of that, a self-policing feature whereby individuals in our community are empowered to report um, incidents that they feel uncomfortable with and that they feel violate our community guidelines so that they're escalated and ultimately we all work to ensure that this remains to be a safe space. So through the power of technology and our community, we're doing a lot to ensure that this Black-owned platform continues to be a safe space for all individuals looking to make a difference. That's awesome. So what you're telling me is the technology is there to stop racist comments and stuff being posted. And, you know, one of the interesting things about the work that we do, while also, of course, still, you know, existing in this space as Gen Zers who use other types of social networks, be it Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok, is that, um, you know, we as activists and creators experience shadow banning consistently, whereby we post a Martin Luther King quote, even as one recent example, and um, the story views tremendously decline or the impressions on that particular, particular post decline as a result of shadow banning, whereby it is content that is deemed to be sensitive or political or whatever else, um, and therefore is visibly suppressed on platforms like Instagram or others owned by Meta, while somehow hate speech is oftentimes allowed to run rampant. So, yeah, or nudity or other forms of content that might be sensitive or explicit or inappropriate. And I just think that this real dichotomy between over-indexing on the shadow banning that disproportionately affects creators and people of color while still allowing other inflammatory and um, ignorant and inappropriate things to run rampant on these platforms says a lot about who they're designed to serve. 100%. And let's say if worst case scenario, somebody were to go on revolution um, platform and say something that was derogatory or really harmful, what is the punishment for that? Well, Can they create a secondary account and continue to do it or? Well, the first thing is that on Revolutionary, you actually cannot create a post that has certain words in it. So as part of our technology, we'll actually flag harmful posts and harmful language and won't be able to go through um, in situations where there um, may be an in-between part where it, it's not flagged by or it doesn't contain words that will be flagged automatically by 
our platform, it would be flagged by a moderator and it would be removed. And then we also have subsequent steps of um, taking action from suspending users from um, joining the community to banning users uh, from coming back to the community as well. So, okay. So what you're saying basically is like, there's words that could be seen as harmless, but when combined could be do harm and it recognizes that. So for an example, something like cotton picker or something like that, that could be used to hurt somebody. Exactly. So again, through the power of both technology that is embedded within our platform and then active moderation to be able to also further look at contexts. And the thing too, as well, is that, you know, there are articles on racial equity on our platform that are really focused on like the historical fundamentals, right? So there are certain words in there that perhaps might be um, shared in a more academic and educational context, not necessarily uh, for an offensive uh, intent. But the really important thing to drive home here is the fact that this is a platform built by industry leaders in this space, led by two young Black women who have been in this space their entire lives and supported by a team of 30 other diverse young people. So at the end of the day, designing a safe space on the internet for young change makers has a lot of responsibility, has a lot of weight, but it's incredibly important when you can bring your lived experiences to this space and then go find the right experts so that you're able to create that ideal that we're striving for. And that's exactly what we work to do every single day uh, at Revolutionaire. That's awesome. All about collaborating with the right people. And who was the gentleman who joined the Canadian Congress call with, uh, with you who provides a lot of the tech support? What was his name? No, so Farley's a community partner. A community uh, partner sorry. He does not provide our tech support. <laughs> yeah, I just remember him talking about how there was layers and layers of it. So he probably exactly. just knows the product. Farley hears me talk about the layers and layers and layers. <laughs> it's really important for us for it to be a super safe community for young people, right? Um, and that's why, again, it's just to say that we, when we decided to build this, we went to the people who built communities for brands like Visa, like Spotify and PayPal and Microsoft. And we're like, this is who we need to build our platform to ensure that it is as safe as possible. And then also has the input of Justice and I and our team of 30 young, diverse change makers to bring that input and uh, make it all come to life. Yeah. And the end, I know firsthand what can happen when there isn't that care and thought, such as what happened during a recent experience where we were Zoom bombed uh, during a Black History Month presentation to a high school and individuals came off of mute and shouted the N-word. We then proceeded to scribble the N-word using the annotation tool and then filled the chat box with hundreds of expletives uh, directed at me and I, both about um, our race and our identities as women. So that uh, has had to be frank, extremely significant consequences uh, for Nia and I, as well as from what we've heard the students have to experience that in real time. Mm -hmm. And Mark, as you can attest to, it's not an isolated incident. Zoom bombing is a regular occurrence that Zoom has not really done anything to take meaningful action in terms of creating better infrastructure to protect people and also to protect communities of color or other communities who might be at a higher risk of uh, you know, being on the receiving end of these types of attacks. No, that's very well said. We're on this podcast because we resume bombed ourselves um, on one of our calls. So it is an all too real problem. And it's, if you're sitting here, you know, listening to this, asking yourself, what can I do um, to support, to show my allyship? 
These are the, some of the things you can do within your own home, within your own business um, to make sure that you have policies and procedures in place that avoid something happening before it happens. So you're not reactive. Um, as Nia and Justice have told you, the technology is there. It's just about working with the right people to implement the right technology for the right uses to avoid certain hate speech and certain things happening to your friends, your coworkers, your family, the people in your community. Um, so it's not like the the resources aren't out there. It's just a matter of you prioritizing them and using those for the right things. And all too often we're reactive. Um, as a society, we have to stop being reactive. We have to start being proactive. That's why we have this podcast as a way of educating, um, recognizing that we have kids who are listening to the podcast because they follow the Wanderers because we're a sports team and it brings joy to them. But it should also, we have a responsibility in this space um, to educate and do more than just provide entertainment and every business has that responsibility, whether you're in dance, whether you're in soccer, whether you're in um, music, whether you're whatever it is, we all have that social responsibility to provide a safe space for those around us. So last call out, um, what do you, would you like to see the big social media companies do given all that context that we just gave in terms of the technology that's there in terms of the procedures that can be put in place in terms of the repercussions that can be had, what would you like to see the big social media companies do? That is a tough question because when we look at the technology behind the big social media companies and the way that shadow banning occurs. And as we spoke about how a lot of hate speech and racism is able to run rampant, we recognize who these social media platforms were designed for and who they were designed against. So these platforms need a huge overhaul, really, and they need to bring diverse voices to the table as they look to um, change and fix their technology. But we're really excited that Revolutionary exists. And not only is it a safe space for change makers and for people who want to get involved in making a difference, but it also brings together a lot of different platforms onto one space. Before Revolutionary, when you wanted to sign a petition, people would go to one website. When they wanted to, to do a fundraiser or a donation, they'd go to somewhere else. If they wanted to learn, they'd go to like a news website. If they want to listen to podcasts or a video, they'd go somewhere else. And Nothing was in one place. It was all really a fragmented situation um, to be able to drive change. So between having a safe space, having a place that really uplifts diverse voices and encourages people to speak about the causes that they care about without being shadow banned, and then also have all the tools that they need in one place. Um, those are things that we're excited about with Revolutionaire and things that hopefully um, other social media companies will create a more welcoming environment for our diverse creators. Couldn't agree more. And as you've, you've both said, and, and, you know, I've given an example as well of how um, sacrifice is a lot of times needed to get to the place you want to get to, whether that's sacrificing, leaving your school, um, leaving your dance school, leaving your city, um, leaving your country in the case of my parents and, 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 you know, being refugees, sacrifice is almost always needed 
to get to a good result. So this is just to say that social media companies, what sacrifice might look like for you might be a loss of revenue in the short term. It might be a loss of likes and followers in the short term. But at the end of the day, if you're trying to get to a place where you're providing a safe space for people to engage, to have these conversations, post their selfies, post their food, post whatever, then sacrifice is needed sooner rather than later. Um, thank you guys both for joining me today. I can't thank you enough for your time, your positive energy, your willingness to share tough experiences you've been to and relive moments. I'm sure, you know, thinking about George Floyd justice, I could, I could see it, you know, in your face that you were, you know, it was, it was bringing back memories and not pleasant ones. Um, but all to say that I appreciate what you're doing and stopping the status quo that has caused us to be in the position that we're in with what happened with George Floyd and many others before him um, so that we can work together for change. Thank Wonderful. you so much, Thank Marvin. Thank you so much, Marvin.